Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdrafts up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. I'm- this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, May 14th. Today, choosing between a paycheck and your health, the story behind a whistleblower's testimony, and what to read. So, Holly Bailey, national political reporter for The Post, who is Terry Nider? Terry Nider is 64 years old. She lives in Lone Tree, Iowa, which is a small town of about 1,400 people in far southwest Johnson County, which is basically the Iowa City area in, in Iowa. And she's on Social Security, but she works at a gas station a few days a week just to make ends meet, to help her pay her rent. I watch my grandson three days a week, and then I also work at Casey's three days a week, eight-hour shifts. So I'm actually the sub-maker at Casey's. I also used to make pizza, so I help with that. If the pizza maker needs help, then I help with that. And I just, you know, I don't make enough on my uh, Social Security. I'm semi-retired, so that's why I work part-time. And when... COVID-19 began to be a problem, she became very, very concerned about what that might mean for her. If she was, if she was to be exposed, she was really concerned about getting sick. Because I have COPD, I also have high blood pressure. When this began to spread, she says that she contacted her doctor and her doctor was hesitant to give her a letter saying, don't go to work. This was a period when no one really was worried about the virus in the way that they are now. It wasn't yet diagnosed in Iowa. From what the governor has said, I feel like I'm in the vulnerable group because of COPD and high blood pressure. It's my understanding it can kill me. My physician assistant talked with her doctor that's over her, and they said, no, they didn't. They just didn't feel like I was in danger working at Casey's, that, that I'm away from customers far enough, I guess, you know. And, but you still have the employees. I had one woman cough on me. My coworker, she turned and coughed right on me. That's why I don't feel I'm safe there. She was eventually furloughed because that's when the state began to shut down. Um, And so she's been collecting unemployment benefits. She gets about $137 a week after taxes. So what is she doing now that Iowa is starting to think about reopening? Well, she's really, really freaked out and really scared. She lives in an an apartment just off this very rural highway, 22, and she has a balcony and she's not been going out much. She's, you know, it's a very small town and you can kind of avoid people because social distancing is kind of what draws people to rural areas like this. But she has her daughter get her groceries and she does a, a large ball of twine, which she ties to the end of her keys and drops them down for her daughter to open the front door and, and put her, her groceries inside. And so, you know, she's just been sort of hiding out. 
in recent days, Iowa has has slowly started to reopen. And there's been a rule that the state officials are starting to enforce that, you know, if you're called back to work, you have to go. You can't cite sort of being scared of, of getting sick. And so she's just been sitting really dreading getting that phone call to go back to work because she feels that it would be a death sentence in some ways. I don't want to get that call. I do not want to get that call. I don't feel I'm safe going back to work. I just, I don't, I can go there. I think I would be a nervous wreck every day if I tried to go back. I don't think I could go back. And it's like, I'm not lazy. You know, I'm 64. I worked my whole life. I worked two jobs, you know, for many years. You know, I've raised two kids by myself. It, I'm, that's not the case here. I'm not lazy. How bad is coronavirus in Iowa right now? It's really bad. There have been more than 10,000 cases diagnosed. What's really concerning is that it's still spreading in a significant way. And a lot of people point to cases in the meatpacking industry, which is, has sickened a lot of Iowans. But it's been really on the uptick in deeply rural areas. There's still a lot of people getting sick. And as the numbers are going up, the state is slowly starting to reopen. And so there's a lot of concern that it's going to continue to spread in a, in a very significant way because, you know, social distancing is sort of being lessened. What's unusual about what's happening in Iowa is that they have an online form where people can report people not going back to work. And the state has made clear that they're putting the onus on workers to make a case for why they feel they shouldn't go back to work. What's tricky about it is that, you know, Iowa has pointed out that if places, you know, like Casey's has installed plexiglass around where the cashiers are, or if they've, they've handed out gloves or masks, you know, the state of Iowa has made clear that that's something that they consider, you know, a way of making workplaces safe. What the state has said is that if, if workers don't go back to work, because they're scared of becoming ill, it will be counted as a voluntary quit and they will lose their unemployment benefits. Um, and for someone like Terry, that $137 a week is, is what she's counting on to sort of help pay her rent. If she's not getting that, she has to go back to work and risk her health. And that's something that scares her. Right now, workers find themselves in a really precarious and sort of impossible place. On one hand, many of them have been waiting for a long time to get unemployment checks. And without that money coming in, they're now forced to make very dangerous decisions about whether to return to unsafe working conditions or perhaps try to ride it out at home. And then for others who did receive unemployment, there are now these new threats coming, sometimes from their own states, threatening to take away their unemployment benefits if they don't return to work soon. So if you're an average family living in a number of parts of the country right now, uh, you're really facing these very difficult questions about what to do in order to protect your health, but also to protect your finances going forward. I'm Tony Rahm, and I'm the tech policy reporter for The Washington Post. So if we haven't yet reached the point where the virus is under control and where we've actually flattened the curve, then why are these states pushing for people to go back to work and in some cases threatening to take away the option of, of being on unemployment? There are two reasons. First, because some of these states are rushing to reopen right now. 
you know, we've obviously had this tension that's played out in the U.S. between public health and economic recovery. There are some states that are racing to restart business, even when some of the residents aren't necessarily comfortable with returning to their old routines. And in many of those states, which happen to skew Republican, you're hearing threats coming from top Labor Department officials who say, if you've been given your old job back, you've got to take it or you lose unemployment benefits. The other reason we're hearing, though, is because it's just a matter of law. I mean, we don't talk about it often, but technically in employment law in many of these states, if you're reoffered suitable full-time employment, you're supposed to take it. Now, in a normal circumstance, that makes a whole lot of sense, right? Unemployment insurance is supposed to be a stopgap. It's supposed to help you with paying for your groceries and paying for your mortgage in a period of time when you're out of work. But the assumption there is that eventually you get back to work. So for these states that have long had these sorts of requirements, that's sort of running up against some of the challenges we're facing with coronavirus when people are being told that they should stay at home. So people rightfully, in the eyes of some experts, just don't know what to do. When the coronavirus outbreak in the U.S. was just beginning, I remember hearing some lawmakers, and particularly Republican lawmakers, pointing out their concern that if you add to the amount that people were receiving on unemployment, then you incentivize them to not actually go back to work when they have the opportunity to do that, or that people will say, look, I make more money when I'm on unemployment than I, than I do at my actual job, so why should I go back to work? If you pay people $23 an hour not to work, they will take you up on it. It doesn't mean they're lazy. It means if you're going to pay them $23 not to work, they'll probably take that over 17 to go to work, even though people like working. Is that a thing that's on people's minds right now? Sort of is the short answer there. It is, in fact, true that there are a lot of people who are making more money now on unemployment with the extra $600 that the federal government has authorized each week until the end of July than they were making on previous employment, uh, whatever that job may have been. That, in the eyes of experts, is probably a sign that their wages were not sufficient and that the U.S. has a wage problem, but it is nonetheless true that there are people who may be making more. But the calculation is not that people are making more and that's why they want to stay home. It's largely that they're afraid of returning to the workplace because they're worried about their safety. You know, I talked to this woman uh, who has been a janitor for the past 20 years in a mall outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And, you know, she was laid off a few weeks ago by her employer. She's been collecting unemployment since then. And there's a potential that her employer might call her back as Ohio begins to reopen. And I, I, I asked her very much about this. And yeah, it's true that she's making more now than she was in her job as a janitor. But what she said is that that she wants to work. She doesn't want to be sitting at home. She wants to be out in her job. It's just that she's afraid of going back because of her safety. Now, she said she would go back if she ultimately had to. If Ohio requires them to return, she will return. But I think that's the experience that you're more likely to hear from workers. It's not that they're trying to milk this unemployment check for all it's worth. It's that they're afraid of returning to the job and they like the extra cushion that unemployment provides. And is there any special reprieve for people who say, look, I'm in a particularly dicey health situation that I have pre-existing conditions or I'm an older person and it's particularly risky for me to be back in my workplace? 
Yeah, there are some protections in place here. We've heard a number of states who say if you have a confirmed COVID-19 diagnosis that you don't have to go back or if you're caring for someone who does or even if you're a single parent and your child is out of school right now and you're their sole caregiver, you know, you're allowed to stay out of work. You're allowed to continue to collect unemployment. But there's this growing concern that the rules that have been put into place still aren't sufficient. So for example, take the issue around a confirmed COVID-19 diagnosis. I mean, I think everybody knows by now that testing is hard to come by here in the U.S. And so it can be difficult for some employees to use that as a way to stay at home if they have to, according to some experts. Is there any guidance from the federal government on how states should be bringing people back to work the right way? We haven't heard a whole lot from the Labor Department on this particular issue, but there are conversations happening in Washington right now about what to do with unemployment. And that's for two reasons. First, remember a lot of these benefits, the plus up $600 checks that we're talking about, uh, will expire at the end of July. So you're beginning to hear some Democratic lawmakers say that it's time to pass more stimulus for people who are out of work for a much longer period of time. On the flip side, some congressional Republicans have said that maybe there's something that can be done with federal law and federal dollars to get people back to work faster. And so one idea that's emerged in both the House and the Senate is, can you create some sort of an overlap where perhaps a worker would get an extra month of unemployment while they go back to work? So they would get a little bit of a plus, but the obvious goal there is to get them off unemployment and back into the workplace. When this expires, and I promise you, over our dead bodies, this will get reauthorized. We've got to stop this. You cannot turn on the economy until you get this aberration in the law fixed. But both of those ideas, no matter which direction you ultimately go, are trapped in this larger congressional dynamic right now where lawmakers are barely talking to each other and negotiations have often broken down. So the future of the entire next stimulus package, including unemployment, remains as uncertain as ever. Tony Rahm writes about technology for The Post. Holly Bailey covers national politics. Today, the world is confronting a public health emergency unlike any we've seen in over a century. Our window of opportunity is closing. Without better planning, 2020 could be the darkest winter in modern history. So today, Rick Bright, an official who had been inside the Department of Health and Human Services, was called before Congress to speak and answer questions about what was essentially a whistleblower complaint that he filed last week. Aaron Davis is an investigative reporter for The Post. Today, we're going to hear about the disastrous federal response to an approaching pandemic. Dr. Bright has filed one of the most specific and troubling whistleblower complaints I've ever seen. That whistleblower complaint alleged many things, but probably most important, he said that at many points early on, when the virus was first arriving, in the United States in January and February. I began getting alerts from industry colleagues in in, in mid and late January telling me that from an outside view, from the industry view, that the supply chain was diminishing rapidly. He raised the alarm about 
the country needing more masks, needing more swabs, needing more protective gear. I began pushing urgently in January, along with some industry colleagues as well. And those urges, those alarms were not responded to with action. And says that that concern was dismissed repeatedly. And this office that Rick Bright worked for, it's one that you've probably never heard of. But it's key to understanding how the federal government has responded to COVID-19. Rick Bright worked for something called the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. And if that wasn't Washington acronym enough, <laughs> that's nested underneath of something called ASPR, the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. This office, ASPR, fills a really important role for the government. For many years, they have been in one of the lead voices in deciding what the U.S. is going to stockpile in the preparations for a public health disaster and then how the government would respond. How they'd respond to things like a naturally caused pandemic or even a bioweapons attack like anthrax. And for the last two years, they've been solely responsible for managing and buying supplies for something called the Strategic National Stockpile. So the Strategic National Stockpile, it is about $7 billion worth of goods, antidotes, vaccines, protective gear, antivirals. There are stores of this, warehouses, strategically placed around the country to respond to a disaster somewhere. Now, there have been exercises over the years, disaster planning models where you'd have hospitals and public health officials and the government all sitting in a room talking about how would we respond to this? How do we get this antidote there? Well, we'd need protective gear. Could that be sent too? And as I understand it, you'd have the government there saying, well, if you need that, you can call on the stockpile. And the fact is now that it's needed most, we've learned it is wholly inadequate to deal with a national public health disaster, that there's only a fraction of what was even needed in a matter of weeks. And the question that people are asking now is why? This stockpile that was explicitly created to prepare for a pandemic or a public health disaster, why is it lacking enough of the most basic critical medical supplies like PPE and ventilators? Because what this office, Asper, has been putting into the strategic national stockpile is tons and tons of antidotes and vaccines for bioweapons attacks that are pretty scary, but also much less likely to actually happen. ASPR is, they consider themselves the combatant command of the response to public health emergencies in the United States. Hmm. What does that mean? Now, the person who wrote this, the bill that created this office years ago in Congress, is actually now the person who's the director and the assistant secretary in this office. His name is Robert Cadlick. And he really felt that Going back to post 9-11, you remember the anthrax attacks, the concerns that there was the next big thing coming, that the United States needed to have an office, a hub, a general, if you will, that would lead the response in the case of a public health emergency. And so that meant you needed an office that could make sure that the country had enough antidotes and vaccines for smallpox, for anthrax, or any kind of a substance that we understood could be weaponized and used against the United States. And it would be this office's job not just to uh, you know, work on getting those in the hands of the government, but then figure out how to get them to every American in the entire country if it needed be. 
So when he was making decisions on what goes in the stockpile and was investing in things that would be useful in the case of a bioterrorist attack or some kind of biowarfare, was he doing that, like, to the exclusion of preparing for more basic things? In essence, yes, because there are, unlike across the river at the Pentagon, where there's tens and hundreds of billions of dollars to spend on military warfare and weapons, there is a very small amount of money, relatively speaking, that goes to public health. And so the couple billion dollars a year that could go to something new, and Cadillac's eyes should go to the antidotes and vaccines that only the U.S. government would ever really want anyone in the country to have and that companies would not make unless there was a customer waiting being the U.S. government. He thought that, and has said so in meetings that, according to people I've spoken to, that, you know, when it gets to, say, protective gear and things, that the industry is going to have to step up and fill the gap and begin making those in greater quantities. The thing is, the strategic national stockpile has been deployed 60 times since 2001. 59 of those times were for some response to some kind of natural disaster, not a weaponized bioattack. We understood America would face a shortage of N95 respirators for a pandemic response in 2007. And we have exercised and known and evaluated that number almost every year since 2007. It was exercised even as late as early as 2019, August, in Crimson Contagion. Last year, this was a, an exercise that was organized by his office called Crimson Contagion and played out the scenario almost in an eerie way of what we've seen this year, a virus that breaks out and China works its way across the world. And the, some of the conclusions of that working group inside his office that uh, conducted that was that there would be a national shortage, an international shortage of protective gear, of the kind of elements that you would need to respond every day in, in working through a very serious health crisis. And when he was making those decisions on what to get for the stockpile, did other government officials or public health experts have concerns that he was basically paying attention to the wrong thing? Yes and no. There's a large group of proponents of making sure the U.S. has the stockpiles for a bioterror attack. To say that this was just Robert Cadlick's issue is, is also putting a little bit too much blame on him. For years, the strategic national stockpile hasn't been able to stockpile everything the country could need in any imaginable scenario that could go wrong. One person who sat on the board that helped decide some of these purchases that they'd make for the stockpile said it's not just apples and oranges. It's like apples and pine trees and Yeti. And, hmm. you know, should we be stockpiling iodine for a nuclear attack or antivirals for a pandemic influenza or protective gear or smallpox? I mean, these are all their own kind of universes of public health emergencies. And there was not enough money to fund all of these. It's impossible to think the United States could really stockpile enough for any imaginable scenario. But wasn't there a sense that something like PPE and stuff like face masks and 95 masks, ventilators, things that help people breathe or help doctors be able to do their work in all kinds of scenarios, that that would be like the bread and butter of what you would need in a lot of different public health scenarios? Yeah, there are still questions that we are going to be looking for answers to because it doesn't all add up from the outside. 
the very folks that Robert Cadlick looked to and trying to decide what should go in the stockpile, you know, also had written in various places in recent years that, well, you'd need ventilators because ventilators would treat people who had had, you know, been exposed to biological agents or chemical agents, and you would need protective gear to respond to all those as well. So it doesn't naturally flow that do one thing and not the other. And I think for quite a while now, reporters, Congress, people investigating this and looking back are going to be asking the question, why wasn't this a more clear concern? You know, one person who's kind of been a voice in the wilderness on this issue is the other person who testified today before Congress. Mr. Bowen, uh, you can be seated at the witness table. Michael Bowen. My name is Michael Bowen, and I am the executive vice president of Prestige Ameritech which is America's largest domestic surgical mask maker. I have been in the medical industry since 1986. He worked for various companies over the years as there were consolidations and more and more offshore outsourcing of medical gear and protective gear that was used in the United States. Until 2004, 90% of all surgical masks worn, and I'm, I'm including surgical respirators, were domestically made. That year or about around that year, all of the major domestic mask sellers switched from selling domestically made masks to selling imported masks. And what had been largely a U.S.-based business became a largely foreign-based business. Now some 90% of protective gear masks are produced overseas that are used in the United States. And since about 2005-06, Bowen has been going to Congress, going to the Pentagon writing to every president and saying, you know, this is a national security issue. We need to be making more masks in the United States. We thought that once America's hospitals learned that their mask supplies were subject to diversion by foreign governments during pandemics, they would switch back to U.S.-made masks. And so Congress heard anew from him today that there was a missed opportunity to be better prepared for this. Now, this all kinds of comes full circle in that it was Bowen in January, just the day after the first case of COVID was detected in the United States. Bowen writes to Rick Bright, the whistleblower, and says, you know, I've just got a call from the Department of Homeland Security, and they're asking me for masks for airport screeners. Is this going to be a problem? Are we going to need more masks? Wait, so this is a guy who produces masks. Like, his his company is, like, we make the N95 masks that are made inside the U.S. And he had reached out to the government and said, look, I'm ready to make masks for you? Essentially, yes. Michael Bowen wrote to Rick Bright in January. And just at that very time, he was starting to see signs that there was a maybe a, an impending supply chain crunch of medical masks. This was before anybody in the country was really talking about this, like, you know, everyone needs to go out and get masks. And long before that, he had this little website that the company used, didn't do a whole lot of business, a couple thousand dollars a year was all that the sales that they do through this website. And within a few days in January, it did $700,000 worth of business. Wow. And so he writes to Rick Bright, who he knows because he'd been year for years trying to get an office like Barta to take this more seriously and says, is this going to be a problem? This looks like a problem from the vantage point of my company. Congressman, I'll never forget the emails I received from from Mike Bowen and indicating that we are, we are, Mask supply or N95 respirator supply was was completely decimated. 
And he said, we're in deep shit. The world is, and we need to act. Bright tries to elevate these concerns, forwards Bowen's emails. The next day, Bowen writes and lays it out more specifically. He says, I have four mothballed uh, manufacturing lines that can make N95 masks. They haven't been used in years because of consolidations in the industry. But he says these would be difficult to put online to get back running, but we could do it in a dire situation. If you were to receive orders now... Um, to activate those lines? And how many more masks could you be manufacturing right now? We, we could be making about 7 million N95 respirators a month. However, again... Did you say a month? It's, uh, yes, a month. So say that again, the number of seven, masks? 7 million N95 respirators per month. And he, by his telling, was blown off by HHS. And you can see some of this in the emails that Rick Bright has attached to his whistleblower complaint. I pushed that forward to the highest levels I could in HHS and got no response. He forwarded this on to his boss, Cadlick, on to other division heads at HHS. And repeatedly it says, we're just not in a position yet to to answer or to take on an idea like this. That was our last window of opportunity to turn on that production to save the lives of those healthcare workers, and we didn't act. It wasn't something that HHS, that the government was really thinking about in that way, of how could we ramp up domestic production in the last weeks of January and the first week of February. A couple, three or four weeks there that seemed to have been really a missed opportunity as far as this Bowen offer was concerned. Because by a month later, the government is doing anything it can to buy masks. FEMA is seizing shipments that are coming into the country. The government is, is spending $55 million trying to buy masks from a distributor that's never dealt in medical masks before. There's all kinds of fairly awful procurement efforts underway within a matter of a month after this Bowen offer. Now, it would have taken Bowen, he says, probably 90 days to get his production lines up and running to be able to make the nearly two million extra masks a week. But bottom line is they could have been in production by now, a month ago, really. And the country could have been so many millions more beyond where they are. And so even now, after all of this, after we've talked so much about N95 masks and these, like, desperate attempts from the government to get more, people still have not essentially called back Bowen and been like, hey, maybe you should rev up those machines and start making some N95 masks here in the United States. No, it really seemed to sputter out. According to Peter Navarro, who's the manufacturing advisor for President Trump, he told me that this company was difficult to work with and it was easier to deal with like Honeywell and 3M and other big companies that ultimately they did sign larger contracts with. So when you look at these things together, both the fact that the national stockpile was essentially not stockpiling the right things or the right things that we needed for this pandemic, and then that even when it started to become clear that we were going to need things like N95 masks in huge numbers, that the government didn't act quickly enough to start making that happen in greater numbers, what do you think that that says about the level of preparedness that the government had for a moment like this? Well, we know a couple of things. We know that in the months since the pandemic has reached the United States, this job Robert Cadillac once envisioned to be the general in the situation, he really wasn't. It's clear that things did not work 
how they were supposed to on paper. The U.S. government has now issued contracts for over $600 million for masks and other protective gear. And that's paying a whole lot more for these masks than they might have needed to otherwise. And they're arriving later than there were needed, especially in places like New York where there have been doctors and nurses who have died. And so I think it's going to haunt some of these families of whether the government could have done a better job. Why weren't we better prepared? I think also going forward, there likely will be a much more robust conversation about supply chains and just how much you can actually rely on foreign manufacturers for things that you need. If everyone in the world needs them at the same time, how are we going to get what we need the next time around? Aaron Davis is an investigative reporter for The Post. We still do not have a standard, centralized, coordinated plan to take our nation through this response. Time is running out because the virus is still spreading everywhere. One more thing. We've been asking authors what they're reading during this pandemic to find comfort and just take their mind off of isolation. Hello, this is Mary Beard, historian, teacher and feminist. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Women and Power. What I'm reading right now is Rebecca Solnit's Recollections of My Non-Existence, her recent wonderful memoir about change, uncertainty, a sense of place, but most of all, how you learn to become a strong woman. Try this. The struggle, she writes, to find a poetry in which your survival rather than your defeat is celebrated. Perhaps to find your own voice to insist upon that is work that many and perhaps most young women have to do. In those early years, I did not do it particularly well or clearly, but I did it ferociously. (laughs) I think you can see why I like it. It's quite a short book, but Solnit is such a clever manipulator of language that it's worth curling up and reading it very, very slowly. It's a great companion for time of isolation. Mary Beard is an author and feminist critic. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We are always looking to hear from our listeners. If you've got something you want to share about a story, email our team at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.